Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity in Cloud podcast. In this new series of talks, we dive deeper on how the industry is changing and in particular how application security, cloud security, and our world is fundamentally changing. And today I have another guest that is a very, very honorable guest. And if I read all his (laughs) bio... I'm going to probably create a podcast just on the bio. So it's, it's an absolute honor to introduce you to Brooke Schoenfield. That, can I say, is the, is the granddad of uh, application security, Brooke? <laughs> All the other application security diplomats or our kind of bubble and reference. If you haven't been on a panel and a talk and you haven't seen Brooke, probably you are not in information security. But Without further ado, Brooke, thank you very much for joining the show. Tell our audience a little bit on the highlight on your very, very long history of contribution to the field. Well, thank you very much. And and I'm incredibly grateful to be invited here. I have written or written, authored or co-authored four books and two booklets with maybe another one coming out this year later. I won't announce that one, but so it would come out to about seven books um, in software security, about software security and AppSec. Um, And I use those two terms interchangeably at this point due to the changes you just alluded to. (laughs) I've, I've done, built as the technical leader and then led four AppSec programs at major tech companies that you know very, very well, and you can go look on LinkedIn and see what those are. Um, So I've got lots of experience, lots of mistakes, lots of things I've done wrong that hopefully I learned something from. Um, And so I know where a lot of bodies are buried. And uh, at the same time, um, you know, we've learned a lot and and there have been profound changes in the way software is built and thus the way security has to be done, uh, software security. So yeah, that's all based on experience, but also a lot of research. I do a lot of research. I've been really lucky, privileged to be part of a lot of research efforts over the years to study and talk to my peers and find out what we agree on, what we don't agree on. And so all of that goes into the books, by the way, and, and all of that experience, both research and experience, goes into the books and, and what I will say today. And today I am the ad- advisor to four software security companies, and I work with a couple of consultancies to deliver these same, hopefully, what I've learned to whomever needs it. And one of those specializes in startups, so I think it's a very underserved area is the startup area and, and, the, and the small companies that are out there that have been there for a long time, but can't afford a million dollars for a tool purchase or a million dollars for one of the big consultancies to come in and teach or, or help. And, and I'm very concerned about that. I will say 
one of my discoveries, and I've been saying this from stages for the last few years, there are at least 27 to 28 million programmers on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I ask listeners to, to consider how many of those actually work in a software security program. I would guess, and I don't have this number, the number I just quoted is from research, but I don't have the number, but my guess is it's a million or less. And so I'm worried about the other 20x, pick a number, millions who are outside of what most security people are talking about and to whom they're talking. Those are the programmers I'm worried about because they're all writing vulnerabilities right now while we sit here. And maybe unwittingly, I'm not, you know, I'm not accusing anybody of being vulnerability willingly malicious, (laughs) but uh, still think about it. That's a big number. And I'm very concerned about that because our lives are incredibly dependent on software. I agree. Everything, everything is data, everything is software, and everything is software accessible. And I guess, as you rightfully say, there isn't, there isn't a requirement from a startup perspective now outside from the software startup or security startup. There isn't a requirement from being security aware. It's not even asked by any VC at early stage because the first thing still startup cares is getting the product out as fast as, as they can. You know, it's, it's, I think I like to see that as a risk. You know, a startup look at things as a risk, but security is not a risk up to a very, very late point where the software is very, very structured. And unless you have a security aware person that comes from a background of corporate of some sort, because they start seeing the change in a lot of startup, even very, very early stage, they start saying, how do we do this securely? but only because they were exposed before. Maybe that's the answer. It's very ad hoc. It's very grab as catch as catch can. Um, if folks know that expression in English, catch as catch can. W- whatever that practitioner knows, they're probably not a security expert. Whatever they may learn, that's what they're going to do rather than the breadth and, and length of and depth of, of what soft security actually involves. And there's one of the problems is people do what they, I, you know, I haven't met, and it's, this is entirely anecdotal, but um, just, just to be clear, I talked to a lot of developers, a lot of security architects, you know, over the course of a year, and I haven't met a developer who looked at me and said, security, now that's somebody else's problem in years. <laughs> used to, used to, that was very prevalent when I got into this space years ago, right. but, but I haven't talked to anybody like that in a long time. Oh yeah, security, we should attend to that. Well, we review our code, you know, or they, they do something, they do the best they can, right. but they don't really understand because the problem, and I like to say as people will quote me, I know, but what software security is, is it's multivariate. There are a lot of variables. <laughs> there are a lot of disciplines that are involved and those disciplines exist in multiple dimensions, multiple domains. And because of that, it's really quite broad because there's no silver bullet. There's no right. one thing you can do that will deliver the security, despite what many of the vendors says. Yeah, don't tell the vendor no that. <laughs> silver. Yeah, the vendor stuff. <laughs> I actually, in my RSA talk um, last month, I actually had a slide with stuff I just plucked out of vendors' marketing materials. Solves all your security. 
close all your security gaps, protects against all security threats. Now, all three of those statements are incredibly impossible. And why marketers think that's something that will sell a tool, I don't well, know. Maybe, but maybe, maybe it's because, I don't know, organization try, it, it's extremely painful to do what's right and requires time and effort and data and, and knowledge. So how can we solve this quickly? Where can we get the silver bullet? Where we get the snake oil that get us all healthy without, you know, how do I get, instead of doing a diet and exercising, how do I get the magic pill that get me slim and, you know, without doing any effort? And you know, there are practitioners that want to do the leg work and there are practitioners that just want to buy. And unfortunately, market, the job is to sell to the majority of the people, so appealing to everybody. Yeah. But actually, but, circling sorry. back on that, actually, how, how did you get started in, in, in security? What was, well, what was now, the journey? What was the thing that, that sparked your interest in yeah, I want to do this. Or how did you stumble in? So I did stumble in. So I was a developer. In fact, by the time I got into security, I was a chief designer. I had been director of software development at that company. And then I became a chief designer along with one other fellow. And we were, we were, I was writing TCP IP stacks and we were designing and implementing a real-time operating system, very, very stripped down for doing real-time communications and, and stuff like that. Very deep, system level stuff. I'd been a developer, a senior developer for a long time already. And so I was a chief designer at this little software house called Inosys and not Infosys, the, the Indian <laughs> California company. But nevertheless, I was, I was doing that. And because I wrote the network stack for our operating system, my boss, the head of engineering said, you know, could you just, we, we're, we're paying this consultant to come in and, and do the, the access control lists on our, our internet connection router. Could you do that? And I said, yeah, sure, I can do it. Oh, did I not know what I was getting into? <laughs> <laughs> so you were sold a small job to fix a small access control problem. And here you go, how many years after just being yeah, involved in this crazy exactly. world that is called software security. You, know, you notice, you start noticing on the ACLs, since I was now on the router, that they were being hit. Right. So I said, oh, what's that? Okay, what is that? Oh, oh, oh I should get uh, an intrusion detection system. There was, a, there was a free thing called Shadow from USA Naval Intelligence mm -hmm. that, that you could put, uh, it was open source and you could just put it up. And then I learned about Snort, which was in version 1.5 at that point. And I went, oh, this is a better tool. I'll put that up. And I had like seven screens in my, in my, uh, in my lab cube, <laughs> not in my office, but in my lab cube for all these different feeds because, you know, and um, it was, this was in the late 90s. And suddenly I saw attacks. And then we had a major incident with uh, uh, lost on our, our DNS, uh, DNS on our, mm -hmm. our internet server. We had exactly one internet server <laughs> back in the early days, right? And, uh, and, uh, and, and that turned into a big FBI thing. And, and it kind of snowballed from that. And uh, then I wound up at Cisco uh, in late right. 2000. And they you didn't get scared enough from the incident. <laughs> yeah, well, they had me doing sort of designing because I had all this design background. I, mm -hmm. I was designing future um, IDS systems and that was a great job, but the job wasn't working out. 
And so uh, at that point, they offered me a job they'd been trying to recruit for a year and a half, which was Cisco InfoSec's very first application security architect. Right. Okay. I was Cisco InfoSec's very first application security architect. Now, the thing is, they considered that a demotion because everything was about networks and endpoints at that time. And they actually pitched it to me as, I I know this is kind of a thing, but you have all this development background and design. You can do design and stuff. Would you be willing to take this role so we can keep you? Because they had just gone through this riff from the dot-com bust, right? Mm -hmm. And they kept me on. I wasn't going to go looking for a job right at that moment uh, because there were tens of thousands of engineers all looking for jobs. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll take this thing on. I know about development. I've written hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Let let me do this. And so uh, I was there first. That's hilarious. Little did we know I would have the biggest team in four years. I would have the biggest team in InfoSec. Yeah. (laughs) Cisco, Cisco, Cisco wasn't well known, and it's not a sponsor, so I can I can slam a little bit Cisco, and I'm an ex Cisco guy as well. Uh, Cisco wasn't well known for their security posture. You had uh, issue on, I think, recently they had issue on on a small uh, device, and they just said, you know, it's out of production, so we can't do anything about. It. But then it became security became such a big thing for network and security service, and it started ballooning. You know, with F5, with Cisco, with WAF, with we seem to go in a shift and a rift between network security um, kind of view and then endpoint security view and then software security view. And maybe the next cycle is going to be back in the network security. <laughs> well, the bugs in our software aren't going anywhere. And, and I'll right. just offer up, I'm not going to go into this computer science stuff. But if folks want to take a look at the Turing proof, the Alan Turing, uh, what's known as the Turing proof, or, or what Dijkstra said, how he quipped, uh, you can prove software has bugs, but you can't prove it doesn't. And basically, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. The bugs aren't going anywhere for any time soon. And so we're left with a problem where we can't prove our software has been implemented correctly. So we have to kind of put things together to try and figure out how to get around that problem. And, and there's some basic computer science here that, that is helpful to understand the problem, I think. Right. But then on the other end, you know, you, you have a wealth of knowledge, but and you mentioned at the very beginning, we had 27 million developers. How do we ensure that even the new generation, you know, they're going to get slammed with this, enormously complex technology stuff. And I was just discussing with the other day with a kid that is just getting an InfoSec and he just asked me, okay, how do I start in zero trust architecture? And I said, well, do you know the network basis? No, but you know, I'm still looking into zero trust. I said, scrap everything, just look at the basic and then grow from there. But that made me realize the new generation is slapped with a technology stack that you know, me and you, we, we kind of grow into it slowly from network to software and then application and then now cloud. Now, all this new generation, maybe they get stuck with this enormously abstraction layer without understanding the fundamental. And I'm terrified from the new generation, for the new generation and by the new generation. What do you think? 
I absolutely, which is why I started teaching at university. And so I, I teach security architecture and threat modeling um, and basic security, the breadth of the security domain to uh, junior and senior level students and some, and I get some master's level folks too at the university here in Montana where I live. But that's a drop in the bucket. That's right. really a drop in the bucket. And I don't think there's an easy answer here. I don't think there's a, a quick quip. Everyone who has something to say and some skill, I hope you will share it because you're right. A lot of times at the layer of abstraction in which you, you work in a cloud setting, you know, where, where you can do microservices and you don't have to worry about the entire stack, right. mil, tens of millions of lines of code underneath that and not understand it in the, in the slightest and just imagine that stuff is coming in and going out in your little program, your little Python. And I'm not dismissing the Python programming. That's not what I'm saying, but it's, it's a small discrete piece of functionality, right? Compared with this huge stack on which it depends. And without understanding that, I think it's very hard to understand the problem. And maybe that's where our expertise comes in, Frank. Mm. Maybe that's where our sharing, I encourage everyone who's listening, who has skill, to get out there and share what you know, because that is a very powerful place. And yeah, 27 million programmers and counting, if that number is even vaguely correct, it can be 23 or 32, it really doesn't matter. It's tens of millions. And we need to get beyond the enterprise employed million or two to those who are out in the weeds who are also writing code and also probably care about their code. I mean, I've met very few developers who don't have pride in work. Yes, I've met some. Yes, I have met a few incompetent programmers <laughs> over the years. It has happened. But you know what? It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. Most people care about what they're doing and they want to do a good job, but they don't know what to focus on. And that's where we can help. We as Look, experts, the time. rather than thinking of ourselves as the lone ranger who comes in and fixes everything or, or at least points out all the problems and runs someplace else, which is a very typical pattern, by the way, we got to see ourselves as co-problem solvers who have a set of knowledge that's not common and right. hold that knowledge for the benefit of everyone, whether they be new in the industry or old timers. And that's, that's a very different kind of position. And this isn't just Brooke speaking, by the way. I have a whole collection of very dear friends across <laughs> the industry who say the same things, right. validate my thinking, and I validate theirs. There, there's a group of us. And if you went to the Threat Modeling Manifesto and looked at that group of people, some of whom are, are younger and some of whom are aged like myself. <laughs> um, it's a good cross-section in, in, you know, in terms of that and diversity of, of, of you know, place of origin and, and whatnot. But if you looked at that, that crew, you'd have a very good sense of one set of people who care passionately, who are deeply involved. In fact, my book, uh, Secrets of a Cybersecurity Architect, I'm not pitching my books, but just that book, I dedicated it to the young folks who were that I've met who are just, they're the next generation because mm -hmm. yeah, we, 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 
I'm not going to be around that much longer. I mean, I'm not sick. That's not what I'm announcing. <laughs> but you know, okay, this, this is going dark so, very fast. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm seventy one. I'm not going to be around for sixty years or forty years of practice. It's not going to happen. Um, well, you've wrote so. fantastic books, so you're going to be around forever. I'm sorry, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, I do agree with you. I, I think, and, and, and as a joke, while we were, were narrating, I thought, you know, that little line of Python that may be leaving a Lambda system, all of a sudden find himself promoted to production and being there like forever. And as more like little piece of things become the critical infrastructure that is sitting in front. <laughs> that never happens, Frank. Never happens. Never. never. <laughs> I hope. And it never happens to be we're joking. <laughs> 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 we're being satirical. It happens yeah. every day, probably several thousands of times a day. When you consider how much software there is out there, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's. And, and the thing is, and this gets back to what we were saying before, it seemed like cloud and software-defined networks, which with, without which clouds wouldn't exist, by the way, and, and virtualization and uh, agile and DevOps thinking, they seemed like separate threads. CI, CD, that is continuous uh, integration and, and delivery, these seemed like separate threads, but that's actually the way software is written today. They are, right. are all part of one whole way of, of doing things. And if security do not address the needs of that way of thinking, mm-hmm. you're lost. You're really out in the set. So to, to give an example, um, and this is classic, this is the problem I hear most often from security architects, getting called late to do a threat model, like just before go live. Can you do a security review? I mean, there's nothing, unless people are going to stop the go live, there's nothing a threat model is going to help there. It's just going to frighten people. So it's almost right. useless at that point. Um, it's, the, you know, it's a foundational technique for planning and designing and figuring out what to do whether that's done as you're developing like in a very agile parallel way or as a separate step, it doesn't matter. It's still foundational, just like considering performance or whatever, or scalability Mm -hmm. or usability. But nevertheless, doing it in one point in time late is the single most common thing I hear. And then developers say, hey, you gave us a whole bunch of new stuff we weren't prepared for. So where was my, my vice president didn't sign up for this? So you get all that friction, but you also get this sense from the developers as security aren't working with us. They're not part of our, our thing. And, and they're very annoyed and the security people are very unhappy and we're making each other unhappy basically. Yeah. Nobody want to go around and developers could have reached out when they started a new Epic. Right. the security people could have called and said, "Are you start? When are you going to start a new epic? What do you got planned?" And and figured it out and and gotten themselves involved. This is a very easy problem to solve, but not with mandates. You just have to tell people, "Hey, call each other." Remember, right. we're working on the same team. But nevertheless, the this single idea that threat modeling is a point in time special security piece that's done by specialists and leaders is it's an anti pattern. It's mm-hmm. actually an anti-pattern that causes a huge amount of friction and upset on all sides. 
Whereas, and I can't tell you how many security, uh, how many architects, regular architects, you know, have said to me, oh, we can't do the threat model till the architecture is complete. Well, if we do the threat model at the time the architecture is complete, you are guaranteed <laughs> for rework. That's guaranteeing rework. And you haven't designed security in from the start. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Everybody threat models, by the way, you wouldn't be able to drive if you didn't have a threat model. I mean, at least I hope you have a threat model when you're driving, because otherwise or you're really assess. dangerous. Maybe that's called yeah, a risk well, assessment or dynamic sure, risk sure. assessment. But but you have you have a you have a sense of what are the threats and mm -hmm. what you might do around them when you practice your driving as you learn, and then you get to do it over and over and over again every time you get behind the wheel because somebody pulls it out in front of you and you can yell at them all they want, but they still did it. And uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so what I'm saying is this is not foreign. It's a mental process most of us humans do. And we just want to apply it in a specific way. I'm not saying there isn't all kinds of specialist knowledge to threat modeling. There certainly is. But everybody can do the mental process of this. Once well, one percent, one percent distributed across an organization is much better than 100 percent on just one percent of that organization. Yeah, well, I like to say, think about it. If you know, if you hand this to the developers and they find one thing that they wouldn't have found before through threat modeling and you've closed, narrowed the attack surface or, or mitigated an attack in some fundamental way, you're better than if you wait for the security expert who can't get around to everything and they find a whole bunch that they can't deal with. You're actually in a better position. And the thing is, good developers will want to get better at stuff right. that produces value. And so over time, they're going to find not one, but many. All of them. Maybe not all. Finding all is hard. Finding art all is really hard, but they'll find a lot more and you'll be in a better position. All is very hard. And let me tell you a little story, Frank. I was doing a major threat model for money, for lots of money, for <laughs> a very wonderful company who did a lot of great security things. And as we were finishing the report, I realized I'd forgotten to ask about how they protected the secrets used to uh, get to the customer admin portal mm -hmm. almost before delivery back of the threat model. That's how easy it is. I've done thousands of threat models, right? But that's how easy it is to forget or miss something really important. Luckily, it never went out to the customer. I found out we included it and all is goodness. But I could have delivered that threat model without doing that fundamental piece of work because I was focused on several other problems and trying to get those all together and, and get the right mitigations and, and defenses in place. And I just forgot about it. And right. that happens. So happens. getting all is hard, which is why I like to get all of my threat models reviewed. Even me, who's done thousands, when I'm doing a professional threat model, I get it reviewed by someone who can review it with me who hasn't been part of the process because they might see something that mm -hmm. I missed because I'm only human and I make mistakes. 
This episode is brought to you by the generosity of AppSec Phoenix Limited. AppSec helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security problems by using smart data aggregation and complex machine learning software. Discover how AppSec Phoenix helps CISO and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at www.appsecphoenix.com. AppSec Phoenix is the new and smart dev-first way to manage your software vulnerability. Follow the tag, hashtag AppSecSmart. Yeah, no, I, I like the peer review idea and also, you know, having guardrail and having other compensating control can mitigate the human, not maybe error, but, you know, missing something. And, and, and by the way, there is automation, threat modeling. You can't automate it all. And, and, and no threat model tool maker would look at you and say, you're going to get all your threats. You don't have to do any human analysis. These people, I, I know both all three commercial products pretty well, but the two <laughs> actual threat modeling tools, not a requirements tool, they're both friends of mine. So I know them quite well. And they would never look at you and say, you're going to get everything. Don't worry about it. They don't market it that way. Luckily, um, they're pretty Thank honest. God. They're really good at what they do. But nevertheless, you get a lot of the stuff that's normal and gives you the, a sense of the breadth. So I really do encourage people to download, if you haven't threat modeled, you know, go get the community versions. They both have community versions and just try it and see how that improves mm -hmm. your, your work. You know, that, that's no substitute for human analysis. There isn't going to be anything unique or innovative or very complex they're not going to catch, but they'll catch all the stuff. And they'll also show you the breadth of what you have to think about because that's mm -hmm. the single most stumbling block that I see when people go through my threat modeling classes is they don't, they're, they're, they're narrow in the things they know and it's hard for them to see the breadth. For instance, and I like to use examples and I hope that's okay for your listeners, but for instance, many people, uh, focus on their own functionality because that's what they've been working on and think right. about how that might be misused. That's great. You have to do that. No doubt about it. But there are many attackers out there who don't care at all about your functionality. They just want your CPUs <laughs> so that they can hide yeah, and your storage so that they can hide illegal things like, you know, illegal copies of software, um, illegal or abusive Pornography. I hate to mention that in a in a public thing, but it's a reality, and it was a hard hit reality in my first real incident because we had child porn on our server. People had stuck it on there, which is why we had the FBI. It was very horrible, and of course, I am so against abusing children in this way. I just have to tell you. I know that's probably too much for your listeners, but just to be clear, it's out there. Bad thing. Yeah, it's and, out there and, and can the corrupt the reputation. Right. And so, and, and so they, they don't care about that. They want to send spam out. They mm -hmm. want to, they want to put up a watering hole on your, on your, your, and a watering hole. I hope folks know what that kind of attack is. Um, that's where you, you know, you have malicious in your, in your pages and they want to put that up and misuse your website as a place to put bad things. And so uh, all of these things have nothing to do with your functionality. And so people don't think about that. when I say that, they go, oh, right, right. And it's often a revelation. So that's why I'm saying it to you, listeners, mm -hmm. because think beyond 
what what your functionality because attackers have lots of things they're after. It's not just the financial or um, privacy stuff that you may or may not hold. There's lots of reasons they'll attack your software if they can for for their own reasons. And that's the specialty that a security person can bring to you, can help you with, is to look a little broader and understand that. So that's, you know, a couple of things, just technical things about threat modeling, for instance. Mm -hmm. No, no, I I totally agree, but... That requires time. That requires management giving you the time to actually do what's right at the beginning of the process. So how do we get the business, maybe not caring, but writing security OKR, writing business requirement of actually dedicating time at the beginning of a project for developer to actually even think about what they're building and even better to involve security professional an assessment every now and then, every sprint, every retrospective. How do we get the business thinking about security, not as a checklist exercise, but I like to say that shifting up and down instead of shifting left and right. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I don't really care for the left and right because that's linear. And the fact is in DevOps, there's nothing linear about the way people build software. There's a lot of parallelism. People are writing, you know, uh, Kubernetes or, or Terraform code while they're writing new features while then we tend to think of AppSec as being only the new features, but all the way we deploy and run software is also code and -hmm. people are writing that code and that code can be misused as well. And so, you know, there's all this parallelism going on and all the time. Meanwhile, people are testing both things all the time. So the testing is in running in parallel and the thinking about new stuff is running in parallel. So that's why I don't like the the shift left or shift right or because... Yeah, it doesn't really map to what's happening. Um, but nevertheless, uh, my little digression, sorry. Um, what did you ask? Oh, yes, management. Uh, management. There's a lot of different ways. And I think when we focus on one way, we miss, we miss the problem. It's really culturally defined. Mm-hmm. So some places, management are going to make security statements and mandates because they they want to say make the right sounds and 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 be right but they don't put any any real energy into that you know when you're really getting exec buy in when you're in a conflict about security versus something else mm-hmm. and you explain the problem to a decision maker an executive and they at least take you seriously even if they decide against you um, one VP, and he was completely right, once said to me when we were doing exactly that, talking about a very difficult problem and, and a very difficult decision. And he said, well, I guess, Brooke, that it's my job to stick my neck out and I'm going to go with the features instead of the security for now, because I think I've got business drivers that demand it. But it's my That's job. That's a risk to- assessment. Yes. And, it, and I said, yes, it is your job to stick your neck out. That's exactly why you're here making this decision and I'm mm-hmm. not because I won't make it correctly for the company and for, for this product. And because uh, that's not my job. And, and he was right. Um, you know, when you're being taken seriously in that way, and it doesn't always go the way of I accept the risk that, that you have support. On the other hand, here's my little advice, folks. If your management are undercutting you or they always say, I'll just take the risk and they always decide against you and don't want to listen, find another job. 
I'm sorry, but you're not, you're not going to be effective and it's not going to work. You have to have management willingness to grapple with the problems, even if they decide against you. When you have that, you have support. That is what support looks like. We are grappling with the problems. When I was a, what they call a principal engineer at McAfee and Intel, it's their distinguished engineer category at Intel's mm-hmm. protected, you know, I won't go into that, but just, just assume it's like distinguished engineer. Chris Young used to come to all of his principal engineers and he'd say, what do I have to worry about? What's up? And we had a meeting with him every quarter, at least to say, Chris Young was CEO, what's up? And one of those things was security of our Mm -hmm. products. What do we need to worry about? Which was my job to carry forward. And I would say, this is what we're worried about. This is where we're working. This is where we're exposed and what could get worse. And and that's management buy-in. That's management support, exact support. But don't forget, don't forget, mid-management can make make you or break you. (laughs) That is the director's. Yes. And the senior managers, they can make or break you. If you don't have relationships with those people and they are not helping you, they will make or break you. And so that's another place where I work is with my, you know, since I've been a director or a senior director at companies, I work with my counterparts across. And no, mm-hmm. I never wanted to be a VP. Um, I tried that years ago and didn't like it. So, um, <laughs> uh, so no. So if you're wondering why Brooke isn't the VP, it's because I said no. I, I'm more effective at a different level. But nevertheless, y- you have to work with your counterparts across mid-management if that exists or however that exists in your organization. But here's the thing. I never refuse help from the grassroots, ever. I find a place for everyone who says, I want to learn about security. I want to do something. Even if they joined three months ago and they have a full plate of development, if they say, I want to help, I find something for them to do. Because here's the interesting thing, and I discovered this about my second year. Remember what I said about being uh, Cisco <laughs> InfoSec's first application security uh, security architect. In my, about my second year, I discovered quite by accident that the tipping point in a project wasn't a majority. The tipping point to take right. security seriously, two people would get people paying attention Three people out of, say, a room of 12 to 15 people, two, three people talking seriously about security was enough leverage to really? bring security out to everyone in the room and make it important. If three people, one of whom might be rather junior and one of whom might be fairly senior and myself start really taking security seriously, we had the battle won. So wow. I never refuse help. And here's the other thing. If your management are just, dare I say, clueless or focused on other things, sometimes just working at the grassroots will change things because that's one very powerful way to work is you get people going at at the bottom, software gets better, external reports start going down, you've, you've improved things, your software is more solid and Execs who are clueful, who care about their products, will notice. We'll see change. Directors who care about their products will notice that things are changing and they will get on board. So, you know, I work at three different levels, actually. Execs, absolutely. If I can get their buy-in, that's the best. And, And if they actively support me, which means taking it seriously, not winning all the time. 
just to mm-hmm. be clear. Um, and the grassroots, and then this mid layer of people who have senior technical roles and senior, you know, management roles. Those folks, they're very important too. So um, yeah, I, uh, I, I like to work at three different levels because it's very powerful. And I, and I must say, at this stage in my career, such as it is, I get to work at three different levels, <laughs> but you know, you have to kind of look at where you are. You don't want to be the person raising all the problems when you've just started at a, at a job. Your job is to prove your value and prove your worth and prove that you will do the, do what's asked of you. And you don't get a lot of choice in that. The point at which you get to have this kind of influence is after you've created a lot of influence because you've proven value. So you Mm got to remember when I say these things, that's after having, you know, jobs where VPs routinely call me and say, Brooke, what do you think? Then I get a lot of influence. And, you know, that's that's a different position than if you just started there. You you can get you can get burned very quickly, especially very quick. And they have a good memory for bad things. Well, that's the other thing about our industry. It's very, the more senior you get, it's very incestuous. We know each other. (laughs) A lot of us know each other. And if you, it's okay to make mistakes and own them. Everybody makes mistakes. But if you do something that lacks integrity, word gets around and you're not going to have all the, so what I like to say is, I actually, what I sell now at this point, yeah, I have knowledge, I have experience, but what I really sell is my integrity. That's what people are counting on, that I'm working for them and I'm working for the best. And, and, and that I'm very protective of, um, uh, you know, which is why I'll say things like publicly, boy, I made a mistake because that (laughs) helps people trust that when I'm on the job, if I screw up, I'm going to be honest. You raise about the it. hands. Brilliant. And as we're coming to a close, we usually have a tradition on the show that, you know, you just, I think you say the very powerful thing that is integrity that in this day and age is sometimes overlooked. But if you can leave everybody with like a positive message just to conclude or maybe recommendation aside from live your life with integrity, the thing. It's beyond InfoSec. <laughs> Which one would it be? Well, so I think there is hope. I really do, or I wouldn't engage in this. Um, though this is a very difficult problem, software security or AppSec, I think there has been an industry consensus. It's not simple, but there's been an industry consensus for some time about what will deliver the best we can do in terms of delivering as as, as secure a software as we need. And I like to put it that way because there's no all secure, right? <laughs> there's no remove all problems. But what is needed, there's actually quite a cons- consensus on that. If you go look at, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to tout my own books, but we did put a generic SDL into, into the last book, Building Insecurity at Agile Speed. And you could get it there. But I want to point out just Microsoft's, SDL, and they've been at this a long time. Their SDL, it's no longer tied to any way that you build software. It doesn't have any timings or expectations of what flows in and what when something is done. It's all event-driven, which is the way it should be, um, just like our 
SDL, they're very similar, but that's a great place to start. If you look at the breadth and the depth of what they suggest you do in their, in their security development lifecycle, I think you will see that's what it takes to build secure software. And that's mm -hmm. a great place to start. So let me just point out um, Microsoft's because I think it's very, very good. And, you know, I'm not selling any Microsoft, you know, products. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying, and, I, and disclaimer, as far as I know, I don't have any Microsoft interests financially. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is theirs is very good. Go look at that. If you mm -hmm. want a freebie, it's published. It's right there, free to a good home. If you want to pay, you know, 50 or 60 bucks for a book, we have the SDL thoroughly explained in our book. And that there's an appendix that has it as discrete activities that then you can just do. And it will work with any way that you build software from the most waterfall to the most agile to the most DevOps. That was the idea. And, you know, you could get it there. But, but go to Microsoft. You don't have to buy my book. Microsoft is very good. And, and it sets out almost the same things because there's a lot of consensus. You'll be surprised because it's not simple. There's not one silver bullet that will do it all. You got to do a bunch of stuff. But if you do them all sort of smallish, it all adds up. Right. And I'm sorry so for the possible. marketing. Yeah, that's the state of the art right there. And you can come to the state of the art without too much trouble. There's a lot of open source stuff to help you. So you don't necessarily have to spend money here. And, you know, ask me offline what those products are. I'll be glad to tell <laughs> you where, where to look. Um, but there's a lot of great stuff there. It's, it's there to a good home. And, and you can get started here. And you can make a dent in this. And you can do it without blowing everything up and, 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 and doing nothing but security like Microsoft did for however long that period, the, the, the memo. People may not know about the history here. I think it's 2001, but Gates was so upset about all the security problems that were being right. found in, in, in the products. He sent out a memo and he said, for a month, we're gonna talk about nothing but security and we're going to, we're going to start addressing this problem. And you know what? Nobody gets out of bugs. Certainly Microsoft have delivered some nasty bugs in the last year. But mm -hmm. if you look at how many bugs they had to address in 2003 in their, you know, in their patches and how many they address today and the, the type of them, it's a radical shift. So, right. you know, I want to I want to praise the companies that do this very well. And they're not the only one. It is no, possible. But I think it is. And I think there is hope to actually do. And I'm sorry for the marketing folks out there. There isn't a silver bullet. And, and if required legs work, but there is a path forward. And I'd like I'd like you and everybody else that came into the podcast before that have shared, you know, this knowledge, your talks, and there is a way forward, just Google it. <laughs> it's out there or ask or or ask somebody to mentor you. But Brooks. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and your direction and your positive message. For everybody, go out there, look at either Microsoft SDL or other resource or ask your peer security person for an advice and spend 10 minutes, buy him a coffee and start talking about security and get security safe. Bro, thank, thank you, you very for much for the on. show.
I'm very honored. You have a great hey. day, Frank. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Stay safe. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.